Welcome to episode three of We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm here in the kitchen of Daniel Corral. Is that actually how you say your last name? Yep. Okay, good. Yeah. In South Pasadena. And tell us your family story. What you? I know your your grandfather just died, right? Your Lolo? Yeah, he just passed away. He was uh, 100 years old, at least. Uh, they weren't sure because they couldn't find his birth certificate because he was oh, born yeah. in Tiwi in the Philippines, a small town in the uh, Albay province. So mm-hmm. he was either 100 or 101, they couldn't say. <laughs> So he just passed away. Uh, he spent about 50 years living in the States. And um, he immigrated from the Philippines mm-hmm. after World War II, which is a really long, pretty long story. And uh, was in the U.S. for a long time. And then eventually moved back there. Partially because my uh, Lola uh, had Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and uh, reverted back to her native dialect of Bicol. So, uh, she wasn't necessarily making sense to anybody, but she was not, she was only speaking Beagle words. Uh, so they're like, well, she would be better taken care of if she was back in Tiwi. So they moved back there. How old were they when they moved? Uh, that would have been only about five years ago. That's a big move at that age. Yeah, definitely. It was a slow process though. Um. Yeah, he had slowly built a house there, and he had um, built a little sort of, not mini mall, but a little strip that had some booths for businesses, like mm-hmm. an internet cafe, uh, water, that sort of stuff. I think there was a dentist there, something like that. So um, they kind of slowly set this up so that um, uh, they would have a place to go where she could be better taken care of. And it'd be cheaper for them because he has all these VA benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, that would make a lot more sense. The cost of living is a lot less. Yeah, so actually uh, the part why I originally started uh, recording a bunch of their stories was partially with her Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some times where my um, they would come up to Alaska where I grew up and visit, and she would... Uh, have to stay home because she couldn't hang out and do the same things with everybody. So they're like, Daniel, you're going to hang out with your Lola. Everybody else is going to go fishing or whatever. It's like, okay, fine. Uh, so we hung How out. How old were you at uh, this point? I would have been a teenager, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, I would think maybe going to college. So uh, we'd hang out and uh, she'd start telling me these stories from her childhood and everything. And... Um, so they're interesting stories, and she'd actually say, I want to tell you these before I forget them, because pretty soon I won't be able to tell anybody this. Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty deep statement there. So um, I got a mini cassette recorder. Well, I had one lying around, because I liked to, it made cool noises, you know. <laughs> Hit the fast forward button. Goes, yes. Yeah. So cool sounds like that. So um, I ended up setting one of those by us while we were talking, and she would tell me these stories, which are all really interesting. Um but uh, that got my interest peaked in this stuff. And uh, I was remembering back to when we were kids, uh, the only time my Lolo talked about uh, his time in the military in the Philippines mm-hmm. was uh, 
there's only one thing he really ever said about it, which was my brother had a school assignment as a kid to interview someone who had been a veteran. And so um, he asked my Lolo and Lola about that. And so he sort of dictated this story uh, to my Lola, which was uh, his time in the Bataan Death March, Hmm. which was, uh, I don't remember how far it was, like 90 miles or something like that, that they had all these captured Filipino soldiers and guerrilla fighters and such uh, marched to Bataan. I don't remember where it started, but yeah, lots of people died and he sort of uh, wrote the story of that time and sort of his thoughts on it. And that was the only time he ever talked about it. Really. Wow. So he was, he served in the, as a guerrilla soldier. Yeah. He was a guerrilla fighter in the Philippines around, uh, around Tiwi outside of it. And, you know, it's in the Southeast of Luzon, the main mm-hmm. Island in the Philippines. So yeah, they lived up in the mountains and they would fight Japanese soldiers around the town. So, uh, is pretty intense. Uh, so yeah, he got, they got captured his group and they, uh, went to the, this baton death march and then a POW camp. And, uh, um, a couple years, well, a couple years after, um, recording these stories, uh, I had been involved with a bunch of puppetry and that sort of stuff. So like, well, these are really amazing stories. We shouldn't make a piece out of this stuff. So I had all these stories I collected from my Lola. And actually in the Philippines, I had interviewed uh, some of my great aunts about their time growing up uh, in Tiwi. So I have all these, uh, some of them Zoom recordings, some of them these mini cassette recordings of them talking about growing up. And some of it was about World War II and some of it was just about the town's history and all that. But um, I ended up getting all these recordings of them talking about this stuff. Um, so we made this show, which was about my Lolo and Lola's time, uh, mostly during World War II and meeting. Uh, so yeah, there's a there's a lot to tell about the, some of that stuff, uh, like the Baton Death March when he was in the POW camp. Um, you know, in these horrible conditions, and his job was to take the dead bodies from over here and bring them over to the big ditch over here. So, uh, he, he, they had these morbid, you know, you have to be kind of have a sense of humor about it. So like he and this guy who had shared this job would, would say like, we'd always, after we put someone in the mass grave, we'd run back to try and grab the next skinniest person. Cause if you get someone that has, um, was it jaundice when they're yeah. on, they start to swell up and those guys are really heavy and you know, and they were not fed well and malnutrition and all that. So. They didn't want to carry the heavy people. <laughs> makes like, oh, sense. It makes sense. It's kind of dark. The easiest job. Yeah. Yeah, right. As easy as you can make it. So eventually uh, he was released and uh, was sent back to his family in Tiwi. And he was all sick. He, I think he had yellow fever, uh, jaundice. Was that when your skin's all yellow? Yeah. Yeah, he had that. Um, so he was pretty sick and they, he was in bed for a while and there's... One of my uh, uh, great aunt Loling's favorite stories is talking about how she made him uh, healthy again. They thought he was going to die. So uh, none of the doctors in town, there was maybe two, uh, none of them knew what to do about it. 
So there's still this sort of belief in sort of like witch doctor type of mm. uh, people. So she went to what she referred to it as the quack doctor. And uh, he told her, this is what you have to do. Uh, it was, you have to go into the graveyard just after midnight and pick the flowers from this one grave. And they only bloom at that time. You go in there, you get that, you put it in a pot. Uh, there's some other ingredients, uh, including like the urine of a baby and uh, dirt from another plot of land. You mix it all up, and uh, then you give it to him and have him drink this formula you made. So he, she did, and he drank it. And supposedly he felt better immediately. Or not immediately, like the next day. Wow. So whatever was that in this... That cured yellow fever? Yeah. Whatever else he had. Whatever it was. Whatever flowers or whatever was in the dirt or whatever. Baby's urine. <laughs> whatever was in all that uh, cured him. Or at wow. least shocked him enough. He's like, oh my God. So he was better. Uh, and quickly he went back to join... Uh, guerrilla fighters in the mountains fighting against the Japanese. So um, the guerrilla fighters always supported by the U.S. military. Um, so one of the stories which didn't find its way into that puppetry piece because mm. you can only tell so much is right. uh, some of the stuff where one of the jobs he had was that the U.S. military would uh, drop supplies on via parachute into the bay that was near mm -hmm. uh, to where supply the gorilla fighters. yeah right so they'd see it come down they go down the mountain get a little boat uh, get out there get these supplies and bring them back um, in this part of the story I'm not sure whether it's true but uh, they told me it so it is a funny part of the story it was just um, uh, they didn't have a lot of supplies so uh, they would save the parachutes and um, they would bring the parachute material to the people in town and they make clothes out of them. Uh -huh. So there would be this, you know, this town full of people with American flag clothing on. <laughs> and then it was pretty silly. But then it's also like when the uh, Japanese uh, army would come through town, like, oh, we have to hide all that stuff. We have to. Because otherwise, there was something about it. they would take the supplies um, that they had, and they only had some really, uh, I couldn't really describe it very well, but the materials that they had to make clothing out of otherwise were not very good. Mm. So they had to have, you know, their silly American flag pants on, and they're like, oh, I have to switch to this other really ratty dress that I have around because can't have the Japanese soldiers see that we have this. Right. Because they would think that we're supporting... American Army and the guerrilla fighters and all that. So they have a bunch of odd stories like that from around the town. But um, yeah, when um, my Lolo and Lola met is actually a part of that story too, in that uh, he was a guerrilla fighter in the mountains and uh, every now and then they'd come down into the town and hang out with everybody if mm -hmm. they knew the coast was clear. So they met at... Um, a, there was just like a dance, a village dance. So a lot of those uh, grill fighters came down, and hung out at the dance. So apparently they met at that, and they would, they just they met and they'd talk, and uh, it became this thing where um, 
he was up in the mountains and he couldn't they couldn't see each other so uh, her family was pretty well off relatively and so this whole thing where she, if it was safe and there weren't any Japanese soldiers in town uh, she would light a candle on her window and he'd be able to see this candle lit over here and so he'd know okay there's nobody they can come down they can come yeah. down and say hello so they sp- um, that's how they ended up seeing each other uh, before they before the war ended because they weren't actually allowed to see each other hmm. so at some point they decided they wanted to get married and uh, she was a school teacher and so what they did is uh, they had to be fairly inconspicuous about the whole thing is during her lunch break they went over to the church in town and he met her at the church and they got married at the church mm-hmm. and then they went back to their separate corners you know to the school to go back to work and him back up to the mountains and uh they yeah they just weren't you know they saw each other pretty much in the same way in that she would light a candle on her window why was it that they couldn't be seen together or be married uh well he was a guerrilla fighter and uh, it and japanese soldiers would come through town pretty regularly so it was just the fact of his presence in town yeah not so much them being together but just he couldn't be yeah in right town. he okay. couldn't be in town it wasn't like everyone in town was like great that's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was kind of, you can't have a guerrilla fighter in town because it kind of incriminates yeah. the whole town, essentially. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, at some point, the war ended. Uh, I don't remember exactly what point the Japanese soldiers, I think it's kind of fuzzy in my mind whether them surrendering in the Philippines was related to... Uh, dropping of atomic bombs i think it was slightly mm-hmm. before that um i, I think it was history. it's it's always kind of fuzzy in my mind but i believe is the american army coming in and helping out uh in the philippines i think it's a fuzzy part of my mind but around the same time 44 45 uh japanese soldiers uh left more or less, you know, the fighting ended in the Philippines. And so, um, they were able, the guerrilla fighters were able to come down from the mountains and live normal lives and such, more or less. And the U.S. Army offered uh, these guerrilla fighters a chance to join the U.S. military. So, yeah, my Lolo decided, yeah, I'll do that. And so, do he, you know what his reasoning was? Well, I think it was just kind of, you know, America being kind of this world power at that point and still kind of that idyllic land of promise sort Mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's the opportunity there. So he said, yes, I'll do that and uh, bring my family there. And so um, by the time they ended up coming to the States, they did have a couple kids by Mm -hmm. then. And so they all got in a boat. And took a boat over to the port of Los Angeles in San Pedro. And uh, they, a few years ago, they went with my dad to see the house that they lived in in San Pedro. Yeah, we we took some pictures of it and everything down there, which is really cool. And that was really neat. Um, Kind of really uh, localized that. I never really thought about that part. Oh, yeah, you guys landed right here. That's crazy. 
But then um, he was in the military, so they traveled around all over the place. Yeah, and uh, my dad never really didn't really talk about it much. But every now and then you'd mention like, yeah, we were in Georgia or whatever. There's some real just racist kids there. But uh, you know, being kind of the only non well the only Asian people in mm-hmm. town, essentially, it became kind of an issue. Uh, and it was part of the reason they didn't grow up speaking uh, Biko or Tagalog because mm. uh, my grandparents wanted them to uh, integrate and be more American. So, like, you guys aren't allowed to speak Biko. Uh, it seems really common for immigrants yeah. of that in that generation. Because my grandparents were born here. It was their so it was my great-grandparents that came to the U.S., but my grandparents spoke Yiddish when they didn't want us to know what they were saying. And oh, they yeah. didn't really... I only learned, like, facial features in Yiddish and, like, whatever part of... Whatever words became part of American slang, but not... Right. Um, that was their, like, secret language, and totally. it didn't get passed down. Yeah, that and happens. I think it is that, like, to some degree, this, like... We're here. We have to assimilate and be mm-hmm. American. Yeah, sounds like that's a common thing, and definitely if my Lolo and Lola wanted to talk about us with us in the room, <laughs> it's like they're obviously talking about me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to do about that, but uh, yeah, that's it's it was always kind of funny. It didn't really strike me as a thing that oh I should have learned that until much later, you know, and. Um, we grew up in I grew up in Alaska, so it was even it felt a little even further removed because mm-hmm. eventually he was stationed up in Fairbanks, actually, mm. um, which is where my dad and one of my uncles graduated from high school. Um, which uh, Fairbanks is right in the middle of the state, and um, yeah, so they he graduated there and they continued moving around and. Ended up in Fort Collins in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, bought a house there. And they lived there for something like 40-plus years until they moved back to the Philippines. Wow. Yeah. Um, and moving them out of it was a huge task because, you know, over that amount of time, you just yeah. accumulate stuff. It's yeah. like, oh, oh, look, here's this papers and uh, auto repair receipts from 1975 or whatever it's like i don't think we need this anymore i know it's we moved my in-laws moved out of their house last summer and it had been i think they'd been there 40 42 years something like that yeah it's just yeah it's kind of amazing what you accumulate yeah and i ended up taking some stuff like this organ right here. Oh, that was from their house. That was theirs. They've had it. They had it since uh, I think the late seventies. Uh, it's like, yeah, I definitely want to take that. No one else wanted it, and yeah. I used to always play it as a kid. It's like I love that thing. It's so cool, and now it's in our house. That's so exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, and these shell sort of painting things up here. Mm. There's four of those. They're around the house right now. But, I see another one. Yeah, there's one there. There's another one. I think the other two are in that hallway, too. And actually, I have these paintings of my Lolo's. Uh, that, she was a painter? Yeah, my Lolo was a painter. Okay, he was an artist. Yeah. yeah. He yeah he painted all the time, and he has all these great paintings. Before they moved, I took pictures of a bunch of them. And I kept a couple of them, but not many. So this one I have in my studio over here is this really gigantic painting of 
Tiwi, which is really near the Mayan volcano. Mm. So uh, it's just really nice. So there's a water buffalo, and you know, it's very much like uh, kind of like there's a grass hut, sort of primitive looking jungle uh, painting. It's also oh yeah that what that's kind of what it looks like from that field by that farm. It's just a really nice. Um, but yeah, he was always an artist. Uh, it was really interesting that part of it because he even as a kid um, was always really artistic. Uh, he would talk about um, uh, when he was a kid, he would make a little bit of money by um, teachers would give him whatever, a few pesos for uh, drawing on the chalkboard and making these drawings so that the kids could come in and... As part of, like, the classroom decoration? Yeah, right, as a classroom decoration nice. sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> and, like, his first learning how to make ink by just going down to the dock and getting a squid and getting wow. the ink out of it. Like, wow, that's... People don't do that. No, that's amazing. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing just that sort of... Um, that yeah, just kind of it's very. It's not entirely more or less self-taught mm. as an artist, and also his process not having been trained as a person, who was like it's always like, like a printer, you know, like a dot matrix printer. I'm just gonna go across oh. and make these rows of colors, but they end up being these these pretty cool. As opposed to figuring out the full composition. Yeah, I've seen other self-taught art- artists work that way. Yeah, it's so strange. It's really interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating when I saw him doing that. It's like, how do you? Get I mean, the to me, that right? that allow that it gives you the sense of how much they're able to compose in their head mm-hmm. and have the vision all set before they make it. Yeah, right, right. Which is pretty impressive. It is really impressive. You have to really picture the blending of colors and mm-hmm. form and all that stuff ahead of time. It's pretty crazy. Amazing. How long was he in the U.S. military? Uh, gee, uh, I, he, a very long time. Like he was a career. Yeah, career. Person, he yeah. had was a three-war veteran at the in the end of it. I think it was. I guess World War Two counts. I think he was stationed in Japan and Korea. Uh huh. I think that's was it. He, he did he serve in Vietnam too or no? I am not sure. I think he might have been too old at that point, but yeah. I actually don't remember. But I know he did have three wars that he had wow. served in. So, There's a lot of other little ones that are not, you know, that our country doesn't even right. You know, they don't register on a national much. level. <laughs> We're everywhere. Yeah, but yeah, he was in the military for a really long time, uh, which actually, um, uh, yeah, and after that, he went back to. He had wanted. In the Philippines, he'd want to be a dentist. Uh, I think he had actually gone to school to be a dentist. And hmm. uh, when he came to the U.S., he couldn't use that training because it was different. Like, you don't have a pedal pushy, uh, a pedal powered drill that you're going to do stuff with here hmm. at that point. Uh, and just everything was just different technology. So um, he was a dental technician for a while uh, and ended up having a lab in his basement where he'd make teeth. So uh, I think being in the military had helped him pay for at least getting that schooling. Mm, So he made teeth. I don't know if it was into his 90s. I think it was into his 90s he kept doing this. And so, uh, yeah, uh, 
at the end when he when he when they're emptying out their house because he was moving uh, we take out all these old lab uh, tools and such and uh, have a excuse me a second cousin who is uh, I think also a dental technician and he uh, came by to see if he could use any of this stuff but it was so old that it's just not really useful anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, oh, this could be kind of cool in like a museum. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right. I guess technology changes. There probably cool. is. I'm sure there's medical, dental museums yeah. that would take this stuff. Probably. I don't know what happened to it, I guess. I wasn't paying that much attention to that, what happened to that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, he, he just, uh, it was always an odd lab. Like, oh, there's people's fake teeth in little boxes everywhere so bizarre that sounds really fascinating and then what did your lola do when she came here uh she well they i guess well she took care of all their kids they Mm -hmm. had five kids in the end so i have four aunts and uncles okay and so yeah she just did that um i guess through the military and the dental lab stuff uh, I think occasionally she had some odd jobs, but I don't think she was, as far as I know, uh, she didn't do any, she might have worked some when they started out, but by the time, you know, I was alive, they, she didn't have, she wasn't working at that point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, five kids is a lot to do. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And this you said was your dad, this is your dad's side? My dad's side, yeah. 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 Where's your mom's family from? They, um, well, her they moved all over the U.S. She has family in Pennsylvania and Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, she recently did one of those uh, Ancestry.com things. So yeah. she found that most of her family is uh, Scottish, Irish. But her dad was in the Air Force, and they would travel around quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so she actually graduated from high school in Anchorage, Alaska. And so when my parents met in Colorado... Years later, they realized they had that in common. They had both been in Alaska. Yeah, they both graduated from high school. So that's one of the reasons they moved back there and how we ended up there uh, because they moved around quite a bit. Um, But um, it's one of those things where uh, when someone asks about that side of the family, you just kind of say, oh, they're white. It's not like (laughs) you don't get much more descriptive than that. I guess it becomes less important to detail that than like, the Filipino part's a lot, uh, well, more interesting in that it's mm-hmm. just, um, I don't know, I guess I find it more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Were you closer to your father's parents than your mother's parents? Or is it just that it being the non-white side being more interesting? I think we were closer to them also, just because yeah. we saw them more. Um yeah, we had a, and there are more uncles, and we'd visit them mm-hmm. more often. So yeah, we just see that family. One of my uncles is up in Alaska, so we'd see him and my cousins pretty regularly. So that side of the family was kind of on our mind. And my other uncles are in were in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, one still is, and yeah, we just visit those guys. Because I know, like my 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 father's family is French Canadian, and my mom's family are from various parts in Eastern Europe and but I didn't grow up with my father around and I don't yeah. really know that side of the family so yep. I always feel like my last name is the only thing that identifies me as 
anything close to French, but then I don't really, myself, I only really know my mom's side, so I identify much more with that, their culture. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's which whatever one you identify with and who is present. And I guess Filipino culture, there's such a focus on family, Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes to the detriment of the, you know, political austerity of the country <laughs> how so uh you know it's uh, the pol- politics in the philippines are um they're kind of notoriously a little bit corrupt uh oh right that from sense the of bottom like up. that yeah. it's a family lineage in terms of sort the of government uh yeah you know i'm not an expert on yeah. filipino uh politics but but it's a thing where people if one family gets elected you know even just like mayor or governor the whole kind of uh administration kind of changes because everyone puts them family members and that sort of thing there's a lot of nepotism yeah yeah Yeah. but it's just kind of everyone just kind of understands it's happening Mm -hmm. and it just goes on like that Mm -hmm. but um it does i mean on the negative side you get some things Politically, that seemed to be problematic, but on the other side, there is that focus on family and keeping touch, keeping in touch with people, and you know we are all uh, one unit and kind of identify together, and we should see each other mm-hmm. all the time, sort of thing, which is a really positive side of it. And I think uh, even in the massive geographic space of the U.S., that kind of equals people still, you know keep in touch if nothing else we'll be on facetime or whatever non-stop <laughs> yeah are your parents still in alaska now yeah they're still yeah. up there cool um and my uncle is still up there and my cousins a couple of my cousins are still up there and my brother's still up there yeah there's something kind of similar to that you know i guess think uh, alaskan identity sort of thing a lot of people leave and then they come back because mm. it's kind of a unique place And also, specifically related to the lower 48, Mm -hmm. is kind of a pace and, uh, I don't know how to describe it, culture, which is just slightly different, it seems like. And um, you only really get that there, I feel like. Yeah. Do you identify as American, Alaskan, Filipino-American, or hybrid or do you even pay attention to those labels yeah i guess the closest thing i would just to say would be alaskan but i've been in california since 2005 mm. so it's been kind of a long time thing i've been thinking about like what is what is going on here because it is a odd um mixture of things there's a filipino part of it but we didn't grow up with the culture of that mm. And also we're in Alaska, which is kind of, I guess, geographically different from that. And kind of in the, you know, we lived on a mountain three mi- three miles from town. And yeah. it's like, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a unique thing. But the question of I, uh, personal identity is just a, it's a difficult one. Like, what do I, how do, how should I identify now? And... I don't know, it's kind of interesting uh, to think about, but I haven't, I don't know, it's been a question in my mind. I don't mind. think it's a simple answer for a lot of people. Yeah, right. And I think there's a, that's kind of a, it seems like a pretty definitive 
American thing, I think, or maybe not even American thing, just uh, for, it's probably not, just not unique, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people in that sort of situation where you come from all these different places yeah, and kind of, it's all muddled up and it comes out as whatever you are. Especially <laughs> if your family moves a lot. Yeah. You know, like... I always had a hard time answering the question, where are you from? Because we lived, I was born in Buffalo, New York. Right. We moved to West Palm Beach, Florida when I was 11. But then I went back up north for college and grad school and then came here. <laughs> and now I've lived here in Los Angeles longer than any other place because I came here right. in 2000. Like I remember when I first moved here being sort of surprised by people that were just acquaintances who wanted to give me a hug to say hello mm-hmm. and thinking that was sort of oh, invasive isn't the right word, but it felt like a little too much for yeah. an acquaintance. And, and then years later, um, like it felt fake hmm. sort of at first. And yeah. then years later being at a conference and hearing someone from Vermont describe his uncomfortableness about being hugged by people in Los Angeles and then I was like wow that doesn't bother me anymore I think I'm an Angelino now Uh, yeah that that makes sense sort of moment of like I definitely feel like I belong in Los Angeles more than all the other five states I've lived in yeah it's uh that's kind of neat thing about LA it does kind of bring people from all over odd backgrounds and yeah everyone kind of finds whatever it is they they do i always assumed the hugging thing was like a arts people thing and it could be i mean because (laughs) obviously that's that's my community yeah i don't know is there anything else you can think of that you want to share or talk about hmm uh hmm i don't know uh let's see i am thinking about grandparents and mm-hmm. the Philippines and all that uh, I don't know I found it really amazing to uh, record all those stories of theirs and I have a, I have all sorts of ones written down and recorded that I have forgotten and probably glossed over entirely but, but the really, archive is there the archive is yeah. there it's really fascinating to have that and think about uh, that those stories can continue is really amazing uh, or I should do something with them, basically, so they mm, don't disappear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but just having heard them was really amazing. And that generation of people have some amazing stories. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's so nice to have the time for... to spend the time with mm-hmm. elders who who and listen to their stories. Mm-hmm. Like, I with my, my um, husband's grandmother is... 104 I think and when she was in her 90s I remember spending a lot of time with her and and she was a figure skater and a judge for figure skating competitions and and skated up until her 90s like she just kept skating so and I figure skated when I was in elementary school so their family would always like sit me next to her because they would be like, you haven't heard these stories, the figure skating stories. Sure. And she's going to tell them, so we might as well let her, someone who hasn't heard them before listen to them. But they were right. always, yeah, it was like, I felt like, probably similar to your Lola, like, 
being able to talk right. about the stuff that you remember, mm-hmm. wanting to be able to share that and yeah, and not um, lose who you are as you get older. Right, and that's this very scary thing to think about. That though, besides just a person just kind of dissipating, yeah. uh, just that whole life of experiences kind of also going with them yeah is she still alive she's still alive yeah. she uh i visited them uh in december around christmas time okay and saw them they're both alive uh and she is very actually quite healthy she's pretty well taken care of uh but you can't understand a word she says but the funny thing is is she's laughing all the time but the people who speak her language they don't do. either oh, actually don't at anymore. this point she just yeah. kind of babbles mm. Um, every now and then, you're like, I think, no, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But she is always laughing and doing things with her hands. And actually, one of the reasons uh, they uh, decided to go back to the Philippines was that, um, first off, she was uh, always moving around. She was always doing things when mm-hmm. just the two of them at home, and he couldn't keep track of her. Uh, so they ended up putting her in a... Um, in was it assisted living I think place mm-hmm. just down the street mm-hmm. so he'd go see her all the time but he didn't have to say keep her from turning the stove on stuff like that yeah so um so she became a problem there because she would start to play pranks on other people that's like, awesome like hide people's stuff <laughs> and I was like what are you doing Lola it, it totally fits with the stories of her as a, a kid being yeah. this little troublemaker like wow she really is just reverting back to this childhood mentality. It's like, I'm going to mess with everybody. Wow. It's pretty great. And actually, another thing that I have of theirs, uh, which is a smaller thing, um, that I always thought, just because, you know, I make all these weird music pieces, like I should do something with these things, is um, when we moved them out of their house, there's this big stack of notes on pieces of paper about the size of a note card. And uh, they would say things like, um, I'm downstairs in my office, don't touch the stove. Or like, um, you know. Notes to, little notes, notes to each other. Or notes from him to her. Yeah. To okay. tell, because she would not remember where she was mm-hmm. or what she was doing in any, you know, from one minute to the next. So she might be in the living room watching TV and then she'd get up and go to the kitchen to get some water she's like oh what am I doing here so it'd be like don't touch the food on the stove I'll be back or like I'm down the street at Rite Aid getting whatever yeah I'll be back in five minutes so that's you kept all of them I have all this this stack of these notes because some of them are kind of interesting and this idea of a sort of potential kind of glimpse into what that day-to-day uh, life. Have you done anything with it yet? No, they're just sitting there. Uh, it's like, I don't know, maybe some, one of these days I'll think of what to do with it. There's not the right thing. Or maybe it's just kind of odd. But I figured they're there. And but it does really... sound like the beginning of a really interesting spoken word yeah. voice next to whatever music. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. the idea I was thinking. Um, and this idea of time and temporality and linear time. Because for her, there is no linear time. Right. So this idea of each of those notes is a new experience. Potentially, it could be some sort of thing. Like this composer, Earl Brown, did these number of pieces where 
they could be played in different order, mm. different mm -hmm. orders. So you have like say ten pieces of this orchestra piece, you could play them as like four, two, seven, nine, whatever. So it could be like the sort of thing where this, I don't know, it's just toying with this idea. Maybe nothing will happen with it. It's probably just as well, but I have all these that odd rumors. Really fascinating though. My my husband has these. Um, records and diagrams from various figure skating competitions huh. that he's also been like what do I and it's, so it's the music but then it's also the diagram shows the choreography and and also there's compulsory figure eight routines that one would do not to music but it right so he's got these diagrams and he's always like I don't know what to do with these but huh something eventually yeah, yeah it's a sort of thing where and they were his grand his grandparents yeah there's it's something where eventually hopefully the time yeah. will come it's a sort of thing where like oh, i have this residency coming up or whatever i can focus for three weeks on yeah making that thing it's sort of what i've been doing i've been on sabbatical oh great since january and my proposal for sabbatical was that i would be making work in response to letters my great-grandfather wrote to my great-grandmother during World War One, oh, which wow. we have. That's cool. And I had got them when my grandparents died. We found them in my grandmother's things because it was mm. her parents. Yeah. And then um, I scanned them. It took several years because I kept procrastinating, but I scanned yeah. them all and gave um, family members just like a PDF file of everything it's like 500 something pages it's a yeah. mix of letters and some documents and that's how I discovered that he got his citizenship after serving in the military because of the dates on all the doc you know I have his naturalization papers and his discharge papers and right. some military insurance papers and things so um, yeah so that's the all summer all semester that's kind of what I've been working on are things in response to wow. those letters and I videotaped myself reading them all that's which cool. is about four hours wow those are that's okay. a very yeah it's a neat piece of history to yeah did you know did you know her I I did I think he died before I was born mm -hmm. I do remember Bobby Pauline and there's a lot of photos of us with her when she when um I would, like when my sister and I were babies, mm -hmm. um, and I and I know my memory though is like visiting her in a nursing home. Oh yeah, um, in New York, and I don't remember exactly when she died. And it's funny because my sister and I always referred to both great grandmothers, my grandfather's mother and my grandmother's mother, as Bubby, which is Yiddish for grandma. Yep. And my grandfather would get really mad and say, only my mother is Bubby. Oh. And then I realize now that like nobody else referred to Pauline as Bubby. Ah. They all just said grandma. It, right. It was my, for some reason that my sister and I just thought everybody at that level is a Bubby. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of like, I guess Lolo and Lola are the yeah. same sort of thing. Because I yeah. always think of, even my great aunt says that. It's like, not technically correct, I guess. Mm. But, um... Yeah, that's what I grew up with, because really, I didn't know any of my great aunts growing up, so just my grandparents, so like, mm -hmm. oh, it must be my Lola as well, but not exactly. And does Lola translate to grandma? Yeah, Lolo and Lola, or yeah. grandpa and grandma. Yeah. In Tagalog? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And that just translates because it's Tagalog, you know, national language, and there's the lots of the regional dialects, and mm -hmm. sometimes the words are the same, and sometimes they're drastically different. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Still translates more or less. And did your grandparents say like? Do you know the story? Like, did they say this is what I want to be called, or or did your parents decide that's what they're called? Um, I don't remember honestly. Yeah. I just, just knew them as that. Is my my husband's grandmother? They call her Yaya, oh, yeah, and yeah. nobody, but like, which I think is Greek, but nobody in their family's Greek, and they were like, I don't really know where this. Why we started calling her huh. this? That's a great one. And my father is insisting on being called. He wanted to be called Nana. Nanaji, which is Hindi, mm -hmm. because my sister lives in India, but we were like, we're not, and my sister doesn't have kids, oh. so my son's the only grandchild, and we're like, we have nothing to do with India, why do you want to be called that? But it's, but he's like, so we've sort of settled on Nana, Yeah, well, which is now funny to me, because it's the, it's like, sounds more like grandmother, Yeah, but it's the grandpa that is being called Nana. Well, as long as, I feel like as long as the kid can remember it yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> it seems to be alright actually funny. I didn't it was not until I was like seven that I realized that my Lolo and Lola had other names I thought that was their names for a while. yeah yeah that so, makes oh, sense they do have names Moro and Olga actual other names I should learn those too yeah 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 my grandfather used to also get annoyed by if I wrote letters and addressed the envelope Edith and Saul Case instead of instead of Mr. and Mrs. Saul Case. Oh, he yeah. wanted that formality, and I was sure. like, "Grandma has a name. Why can't <laughs> I use her name?" Yeah, that's that's fair. Just yeah, yeah. But that's a very, I feel like old school gendered yeah. hierarchy, right? Thing. Totally. Yeah, you wouldn't. I guess every now and then you see it that now, but it's yeah, much it's less very, common. It's very rare now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> At least here in California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a really great conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, joining me on this Absolutely. and sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for letting me babble about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Again, awesome. Cool.